You're listening to Inside the Aluminum Tube. This podcast has adult language and sometimes contains graphic descriptions of accidents and incidents, often resulting in death. If you're scared to fly, proceed with caution. Bank angle, bank angle, caution, terrain, don't sink, don't sink, glide slow, pull up, wind shear, wind shear, sink rate, pull up, traffic, traffic. Okay, welcome back. Uh, this is an aviation podcast which looks at aviation events like air disasters, incidents, and mere mishaps. I'm Shannon Baker. I'm your host and the creator of this podcast. If you want to know more about my qualifications, you'll have to go listen to episode zero and you can learn all about me. If you want to see pictures of the airplanes and enhance your experience, you should follow me on Instagram and Twitter, both at Aluminum Tube. If you've listened to other episodes, you already know that I always have a co-host who is not an aviation expert. Their role is to ask questions that will help you, the listener, to better understand what actually happened. Uh, My co-host today is Kent. So um, Kent, start by telling us a little bit about yourself. Hi, everybody. My name is Kent. I am not an aviation expert at all, but I spend a lot of time in airplanes with my work. I work in technology. I'm a regional leader uh, for a for a high tech cloud business. And right, and we met in the airport. So yeah, exactly, right. yeah, on a trip that was delayed. Oddly enough, right, so. right. <laughs> and talking about an incident, which was funny. Um, but um, uh, uh, you were sp- you said you were a regional leader. Yeah, so I, I spent a lot of time in airplanes going to my customers and visiting my teams around the world and uh, have clocked up about two and a half million flown miles oh, in wow. my career, which just means I've spent way too much time uh, with my butt in a seat. I know that, fe- I know that feeling too because yeah. I'm like a uh, Marriott super platinum for life person, you know, which yeah. just means that I've spent too much time in hotels. Yeah, it's nice when they recognize it, but, you know, it just means you spent way too much time. Exactly. In a hotel, in an airplane. Right, right. So today we're going to be talking about two airline flights, okay? Japan Airlines 907 and Japan Airlines 958. I just want to confirm, you've probably never heard of this incident. Maybe, I just want to confirm, you don't you nope. don't know what this is going to be about. I, I, I have no idea at this point. Okay. So you've listened to the other, uh, to some other episodes, mm-hmm. but I'll, I'll remind our listeners, here's how we do this. So... I start with the date. I tell a little bit about the aircraft in question. In this case, it's going to be two airplanes. And then I talk about the company and then uh, talk about the event. Then we talk about what's changed and how things are now. Mm. Yep. So kind of the event, the aftermath, how things have changed. Um, and today we're going to have a, we'll have a little philosophical discussion at the end mm. because it, it's important. And it's actually one of the reasons that I wanted to present this to you uh, because you're a technology expert. Okay. Okay. That, now you got me fascinated. <laughs> All right. All right. So the date, uh, January 31st, 2001, oh, 19 so years ago 19 today. Years. Oh, wow. To the day. Yes. All right. So the airplane. Um, so again, I said we have two airplanes, so we do. So let's go over the two airplanes. You'll probably be familiar with both of these airplanes. Okay. Japan Airlines. Okay. JAL 958 is a Douglas DC-10. Mm, it's an, I remember flying in a lot of DC-10s. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's an American, uh, American-built American three-engine wide-body jet, which means th- when we say wide-body, we mean it has two aisles. It was manufactured by McDonnell Douglas. It has uh, three engines, two mounted under the wings, and a third engine mounted on the tail. It's a little strange-looking compared to modern airliners, but it was... but. People, a lot of people think it's a great airplane. And it's very cool. Yeah, I remember it. It always reminded me of also the Lockheed 1011 that had that tail-mounted engine with the bizarre oh, yeah, that's intake right. duct, you know? And that actually was the main competitor for the DC-10. The L-1011 was a better airplane than the DC-10, but the DC-10 was cheaper and outsold the L-1011. So hmm. just some little facts that I learned. But the DC-10 was intended as a successor to the DC-8, Okay. It was built for medium to long range flights. It used uh, using a larger capacity wide body layout, mm-hmm. and in this case, seating 380 people. Wow. Okay. It was introduced in the market in 1968. It initially had a pretty short range, 3,500 miles, but then eventually they developed it into multiple variants. The variant we're talking about today is the Dash 40, which is the fourth variant. Okay. And that was only operated by two companies: Northwest Airlines, the now absorbed Northwest Airlines, mm-hmm. right? And Japan Airlines. Yeah, my so the, my uncle used to be a mechanic for Northwest. Oh, okay. And, and he used to uh, he remembered repairing turbine blades uh, when one blew up on a test stand once, and was telling me all kinds of horror stories about that. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, very cool. 
I think we talked about this. The DC-10 had a initially had a dismal safety record. Okay, it had a design flaw in the cargo doors and another mm. critical design flaw that actually resulted in the deadliest aviation accident in U.S. history. We're going to talk about that. I'll talk about that in a later in a later okay, you had uh, to go in a later there, podcast. <laughs> That's a pretty good one. Yeah, like the 737 Max. That 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 incident caused the FAA to ground the airplane for a while around wow. 1980. Wow. Okay. Production for all models stopped in 1988. Okay. I learned some interesting things though. The DC-10. This is this is actually really interesting. So the DC-10's last commercial passenger flight took place in February 2014. Although freighter versions continue to operate today, mm-hmm. the largest operator of the DC-10 currently is FedEx. In uh, 2008, United Airlines and FedEx got together and they donated a DC-10 freighter to a nonprofit called Orbis. Hmm. It's now called the Orbis Flying Eye Hospital. Oh, The Flying Eye Hospital, which oh. is in this DC-10 freighter, brings training to doctors and nurses in developing countries with little to no access for, depre- for professional development and training. Oh, how it cool. has classrooms, hmm. operating theaters, all aboard the airplane. So basically you bring this like to a, a foreign country or yeah. some other place that has real need and you can train folks locally as well as treat a bunch of people? Yes. And, oh, how cool. and in addition to that, the aircraft has the ability to broadcast surgeries live oh, wow. to external locations. Wow. Volunteer pilots, mostly from FedEx, hmm. donate their time and skills to fly the, uh, the fly the Flying Eye Hospital to various program sites. How cool. Isn't that neat? Yeah, that's really cool. I always love that I when I when I go on these journeys to like research these incidents, you know, there's lots of different rabbit holes. This this is one that just struck me, and I was like, you know what? I really need to talk about that. Yeah, definitely. No. So I feel like the DC-10 is part of aviation history, but you know, they're still being used. And so, I mean, in phrase, you're not going to end up on one. Yeah, I remember one time flying a DC-10 from Denver down to Colorado Springs because uh, it was cheaper to park them on the apron there You're kidding. overnight. How, how short is that flight? Oh, depending upon the how, which way the wind is blowing, it could be anywhere between 19 and 24 minutes, right? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> and, uh, That's amazing. You know, which approach you had to do, right? Right, right. But um, but the winds along the front range are always really kind of tricky, uh-huh. and especially if there's like a big oh, that, slope yeah, going. Oh, always got to be a crazy bumpy yeah, flight. Uh, yeah, we just called it a roller, color, roller coaster the ride, roller and coaster. I was in the back of one of these DC-10s, and I remember just seeing the whole airframe kind of twist. And, and, oh, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. And, and then I thought, you know, it's really good that this thing is actually moving because if it was brittle, it would be a completely different story, right? Right. Well, they do flex, right? Yep. So they're intended to yep, build that way. But it's very, <laughs> very, very neat. I love that. They they flew it for 20 minutes. That's, yeah. That's, that's amazing. Well, it's just cheaper to park there, you know. They, well, they also used to fly a flight. United Airlines used to fly a flight from Oakland to San Francisco, <laughs> which is also ridiculous, yeah. right? Yeah. I think the current, um, I think currently the shortest flight in... Uh, among the major operators in the system is Birmingham to Atlanta. Wow. I think that's okay. the currently the shortest flight, and that's yep. operated by Delta. Ah. Yeah. But anyway, yep. uh, aside. Okay. The other aircraft is a Boeing 747. 747, you know what that is. Yeah. So it's a large four-engine jet. It's built by Boeing. Uh, the 747 began production in 1969. The 747 is still in production today. Boeing uh, produces the Dash 8, which is operated by uh, not that many companies, but a few, like British Airways and Lufthansa. Yep. Boeing still makes the freighter version. We covered that in a previous episode, in episode one. But the the Boeing 747 is very iconic. It's referred to as the whale because mm-hmm. the shape of its body, sheer size. It weighs around a million pounds. United Airlines was the last carrier to operate the aircraft uh, in passenger service in the United States. Um, but it's still operated by uh, U.S. freight carriers, including Atlas Air. Mm. They operate the F version. And actually, they're the largest operator of the 747 Interesting. in the world. Wow. Yeah, um, I remember um, you know, more than a couple times of, uh, of being up on the upper deck. And it was always the quietest ride in the fleet. Just see, I never wonderful. got to be on the... I only rode in one a few times, and I never got to be on the upper deck. Uh, yeah. yeah. The most notable 747, of course, is Air Force One. Um, the, the airplane specifically that we're talking about in this, in this episode is the Dash 400 variant. That was the best-selling variant of the 747. In this case, it was outfitted to accommodate 416 passengers. Now, is that one of the variants with the little wingtips on it as well? So, I think so. Right. So that's actually interesting that you asked that. The four, Dash 400 variant is the most successful passenger variant of the Boeing 747. It was produced with winglets for everyone but the domestic Japanese market. 
which is what we're talking about today. Okay. (laughs) So most of the airplanes of the Dash 400s that were built had them. Mm -hmm. The one we're talking about today didn't, Didn't. doesn't have winglets. It's just, I mean, it's just a little aside, but kind of interesting, right? So if you guys want to see a picture of the airplane, like I said, you can go to the Instagram. Um, I also post the pictures on Twitter. Kent knows what they look like, so yeah, we yeah. don't need to look at Been pictures. Been in a few. All right. <laughs> the company is Japan Airlines. Okay. Are they like the flag carrier for Japan, or is it a separate company? It, they are the flag carrier. Oh, yeah, they they're the flag carrier for Japan, headquartered in Tokyo, of course, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Japan Airlines was established in 1951. Began, it became the national airline of Japan in 1953. It's the sixth largest airline in the world by passengers carried, mm-hmm. by number of passengers carried. Uh, their main hubs are Tokyo's Narita and Haneda Airport, as well as Osaka International. They also have a few express carriers like JAL Express and a couple other ones. Mm-hmm. They fly international domestic passengers and cargo service to 220 destinations, 35 countries. They have a fleet of currently 279 aircraft, and they are part of the One World Air Alliance uh, network, which is which is paired with Delta and uh, was started by Delta. Gotcha. Cool. Any questions? You good so far? Good so far. All Tracking right. with you. So let's talk about the crew. Both JAL flights, so we're talking about two Japan Airline flights, flight 907 and 958 had only two crew in the flight deck. Really? Yeah. Because, hmm, I always thought there were like three on those big ones. Well, there's it's not required to be three. There's normally mm. three because they're long flights. Ah. In this case, we actually are dealing with really short flights. Neither of those two airplanes needed a flight engineer. Okay. So that's the guy who sits sideways behind the first officer, right? That's the guy who operates like the panel. Yep. But these these airplanes were new enough that they didn't need a flight engineer. Okay. And the flights were short enough that they didn't need what's called an IRO or an international relief officer, right. basically a third person. Kind of a domestic flight? Yeah, or? so we're getting there. But that, okay. that's so the 747 is actually on a domestic flight. And the DC-10 is just flying from uh, South Korea. Oh, okay. So not very far. Nope, right. I've been on that route uh, right. from Haneda to Gimpo, as a matter of fact. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, the nine, 907, which is the 747, it's being flown by forty by a 40-year-old captain. His name is Watanabe. He was the pilot. He was the captain of the airplane. He was also the pilot flying. He was joined on the flight deck by an unnamed first officer. I couldn't find the information. Oh, really? That's... Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the rest of the flight crew consisted of 14 flight attendants. Mm-hmm. 14. So that's a pretty yeah. big airplane. 14 yeah. flight attendants, two pilots, big airplane. Uh, JAL 958, that was the DC-10. It was commanded by a 45-year-old captain, again, an unnamed first officer. The first officer was the pilot flying. That seems weird that they're unnamed. Just- yeah. Yeah. It's it's it can be hard to find information, especially about flights that happened internationally. Gotcha. Okay. So only a portion of like the news that I get from Japan is translated. Oh, I see. Yep. And so so I'll find the captain's name, I'll find the important stuff, but it can be hard for me to find okay. like the details that apparently someone thinks don't matter. Yeah. I think it matters, <laughs> but anyway, okay. we, we don't know we don't know who the first officer was. My curiosity is peaked now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, um on the DC-10, there were 11 flight attendants. Okay. So, again, a lot of crew. Yeah, pretty big airplane, right? Two pilots. Now you have two pilots and 11 flight attendants. I'm guessing both planes were pretty full. Uh, so, they're pretty lots full. Of souls on board. Absolutely. So, do you have any questions so far? Nope. Tracking with you. It's a little ominous. We have two very full airplanes, same mm-hmm. flight numbers, or mm-hmm. same company, et cetera, et cetera. We're talking about them both at the same time. So, all right. What could go wrong? Yeah. So, the events. <laughs> so, let's... <laughs> After listening to a few episodes? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. If you listen to some previous episodes, what could go wrong? Yeah. yeah. Um, let's talk about the events. All right. So, Japan Airlines 907, the 747 departed Tokyo's Haneda Airport, 3.30 in the afternoon. Okay. And it was just flying to Naha. Naha is a, a place on the southern Japanese island of Okinawa. Okay. Okay, so it's just flying to Okinawa. About about an hour and 45-minute flight. Okay. Not not very not, far. Not very long okay. at all. That flight had... Remember that I said that uh, the, pa- the aircraft was equipped to uh, fly about 416 passengers... That flight had 411 passengers on board. Wow. Almost every seat. Yep. 16 crew members, two pilots. All right. Shortly after departure, the aircraft was cleared to climb to flight level 390, which is 39,000 feet. It was very light because it didn't have a ton of fuel on board. Mm -hmm. It was climbing really fast. Within 15 minutes, it was around 35,000 feet. Still climbing. And that's a pretty standard rate of climb? 
I mean, that's pretty fast for an airplane that big. Yeah. And also, to be cleared directly to um, 39,000 feet for a 747 is a little unusual. Yeah, usually, you step up. Normally, it's like, yeah, it'd be like 28 or 31, yeah. step, step, step. But this airplane, it was going for a very short flight, and so it just didn't have a lot of fuel. Because fuel can amount to, you know, 200,000 pounds on that wow. airplane or more. Well, that's true. And, and I think if I remember other podcasts, right, a fully loaded 747 is about a million pounds. A million pounds. Yeah. Yeah. So it is relatively light. It's got people on board, but people don't weigh as much as stuffed with bags and, and fuel, right? So fuel makes up the majority yeah. of the weight in the airplane. Okay. Okay, so it's a very light airplane. It's climbing. So the Japan Airlines 958, it's a DC-10. It's flying from Gimhi International Airport in Busan, in Busan South okay. Korea, to Narita, um, which is in Tokyo. It has 237 passengers on board, so it's not quite full. It's outfitted for 340, I think I said. Mm-hmm. Let me look back real quick. 380. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah, so definitely some space. Space yes. in that flight. Some right. Empty so, suites, room to stretch out. <laughs> right, so there's space on that airplane. Yep. And if I remember right, that's about a three-hour trip. I don't know. I didn't actually look up the leg length. It wasn't really important to the story, but I do know that it was a short leg because, like I said, there were only two pilots on board. Yep. Okay. But thanks for bringing it up. I mean, it, sometimes it is really important. I'm just trying to think of thinking oh, of air, all the areas where things could get ominous here. You know. Right. <laughs> so yeah, 237 passengers, 13 crew. That airplane was cruising around 600 miles an hour. Right. So it's a cruising, and it's at flight level 370, 37,000 feet. Okay. About 15 minutes after takeoff, the JAL 907, the larger 747, the flight attendants get up, they're beginning their drink service, and the 747 continues its climb. At the same time, the JAL 958, the DC-10, had already wrapped up its services. Okay. And it was about to begin its descent. Like I said, it was going to Narita, still level at flight level 37037. So it hasn't begun to descend yet. Not quite. Yep. It's close, but it hasn't begun to descend yet. The air traffic controller on that particular day, he was working both airplanes. They're in the same sector. And a sector means it's basically they take the sky and they break it into chunks. Okay. It- it's not it's not exactly square. It doesn't necessarily have to be exactly square. It sort of works by volume. So if it's a very busy airspace, it'll be like a smaller sector. Yeah. Yeah. And if it's like not busy airspace, it could be huge. Right. So like, like when you're flying over the central United States, it's big. Giant. And you might have one controller working like hundreds of, you know, thousands of square miles. Yeah. Yeah. But Nero here, for instance, you know, there's all kinds of sector controllers and approach controllers. Yeah. And it gets tighter and tighter and tighter in the little little chunks. Okay. Gotcha. So you understand. The air traffic controller on this particular day, he'd been an air traffic controller for three years, but he'd recently changed sectors. Mm. So he's new to this one? Yeah. So he's a trainee in that sector. Okay. Okay. He's a 26-year-old man. His name's Hideki. And I don't normally use crew names in this case. In order to keep all the characters straight, hmm. you're gonna have to use crew. Na- I'm gonna have to use okay. names. So the controller's so Hideki, name Hideki. Hideki is the controller. Watanabe is the 747. Watanabe is the 747 captain. Okay. Let's see. Where was I? Oh, darn. Hideki was handling 12 other flights in addition to these two. So he's pretty busy. Mm-hmm. Records show that he made 37 radio calls within the previous nine minutes. Okay. Hideki's a trainee and he's task saturated. Yeah, I was gonna say thirty-seven calls in nine minutes. Yeah, yeah. that's because with the with the talk back, right? Right, and all because that stuff. they have to respond, and then he has to respond to them. Yeah. So with all of the back and forth, that's that's a lot of radio calls. Now this is happening over Japan, right? So this is happening over Japan. But are they speaking? Is they're speaking uh, actually Japanese? Japanese. Okay. Yeah, and this is kind of a point of contention, right? Because. English is the language of aviation. Right. However, when you fly over another country, let's say you go to France, and there's an Air France landing, and there's a French controller, they'll, they'll talk speak, French. They'll speak French to each other. And, Gee, what could go wrong with this? Right. <laughs> and that and that actually that, that that does affect us as pilots. So, what I try to do is I try to keep situational awareness to where the where I know where the other airplanes are. Mm. So, are you well, only listening in into the the traffic and watching? I mean, do you do you have a radar that shows other traffic? On- yeah, I have I have uh, something called a tra- um, traffic collision and avoidance system, t- 
TCAS, okay. and it shows me where all the other airplanes are. And I can also kind of see a line where everybody's kind of lining up. Yeah. And getting, you know, when you land in Chicago, you can kind of look out there and you can see like airplanes for oh, yeah, yeah. lined up. Well, we can see that on the TCAS too. It's in a like a plan yeah. display, right? I was going to say, when you go to concert um, here at Red Rocks outside Denver, um, and it's a nice evening. You can see all the approach paths. Uh, yeah, you can oh, see right. them as perfect lines in the sky. Exactly. Where, yeah, and that's just beautiful on a nice, e- on a nice summer evening. Oh, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. It does kind of mess up pilots not to be able to kind of keep situational awareness, right? So in your head, are you kind of like hearing the radio calls and saying, oh, that flight's here, this flight's here, and that kind of thing? Absolutely. Oh. So I kind of can pick up. They don't tell me, but I can kind of pick up like who's in front of me yeah. and who's in front of that person. Okay. And like... I'll dial my radio for the next frequency based on, oh, you know, Air France calls. is in front of me. Yeah. This guy's in front of me. Gotcha. You know, I've got a British Airways in front of me. So I've been hearing it consistently. So anyway, these guys are speaking in Japanese to each other. He's working 14 airplanes in the same sector. He's task saturated, but he's under the um, supervision of a senior air traffic controller. Her name is Yasuko. So okay. she's the last character. So we have Yasuko, who yep. is the supervisor. Yep. Hideki who is the air traffic controller and a trainee. Yep. And what Nabi. So Hideki, because he's not very experienced, and also from his from his experience, right, he doesn't anticipate that the 747-400 is going to climb as fast as it is. Because normally they're heavy. Mm-hmm. But this airplane is a domestic 747. It's light and it's climbing really fast. He got an alert on his screen when the JAL 907, the 747, was passing through 35,000 feet, that the 747 was then on a predicted collision course with Japan Airlines 958, the DC-10. Wow. So, I mean, that had to be pretty, like, <laughs> alarms going off and things like that for, yes, for him? Yes, correct. So, the, so literal alarms going off for him. He's got visual display. Mm-hmm. He's got alarms going off. So his supervisor has the same alarms. I, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just like, yeah, I know. <laughs> 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 it feels uh, yeah yeah this is not a good feeling i'm thinking of uh, the, the the combined totals of souls on board of both aircraft just uh. at roughly the same time the two traffic collision avoidance systems they're on the airplanes oh, okay. they're looking ahead at potential conflicts they use predictive software to look at a closure rate climb rates etc they can see the potential conflict uh-huh okay but i'm guessing neither of those uh, neither of those systems are anticipating that that 747 is climbing as fast as it is. So they're actually, so these two systems are actually interrogating each other. One is one system is independently on the DC-10. Uh-huh. The other system is independently on the 747. And those two systems are like two little computers and they're pinging back and forth oh. at 10 times a second. Oh, wow. And they're going, hey, where are you? I'm over here. What are you doing? I'm doing this. And they're pinging back and forth oh, going. that's cool. They're I'd, talking. I had no idea that, that there was that much coordination happening between planes in the air. Right. So this was a result. So this coordination, if you listen to episode four, this kind of coordination came out of other air um, disasters where they had mid-air collisions mm. where they said, hey, we don't want to talk through a controller on the ground. That's mm-hmm. a third party. We want to take the third party out of this. We need the two airplanes to talk directly to each other yep. without humans talking. Yep. Okay? Yep, that makes sense. So the so the initial alert of these two airplanes goes to Hideki in the ground control facility. He's controlling air traffic, but he's on the ground, right? JAL 907 passes through 36,500 feet. He continues to climb. And remember that JAL 958, the DC-10, he's level at 37,000. Mm-hmm. So we talked a little bit about TCAS. The TCAS systems are now talking to each other. The TCAS now issues an alert to the pilots. The pilots get their alert from the TCAS system. And at the very moment the TCAS issues an alert to the pilots, JAL 907 is at 37,000 feet and he's still climbing. And JAL 958 is at 37,000 feet and he's level, okay? Uh huh. These airplanes are on a crossing path. They're oh, not boy. head on, they're crossing. Okay. Okay. But the 747 is still climbing. He's still climbing. Point. Okay. Okay. But here's where it gets tricky. Hideki tells the JAL 907, because he's got the alert, the 747 to descend. <sighs> but here's what happened. Here's why. He based the instructions on old data from a radar ping that was a few seconds old. Okay. Up to yep. 10 seconds old. So at that rate of climb, 
okay. Yeah, it could be 100 yeah. feet or something, yeah. right? He, so he gets the data when the 747, and he shows that the 747 is below the DC-10's altitude. Right. But it's actually climbing through, through the altitude. Above. Okay. <sighs> and I'm he, guessing the DC-10 is going to be told to climb as well. However, oh. now they're at the same altitude, right? Yep. The controller wouldn't know that for a few more seconds until the radar swings around. Right. Oh, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> You're looking a little anxious, Kent. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So Hideki sees that, that JAL 958, the DC-10, was level. Mm-hmm. So he calls the DC-10... And he asks them to turn. Okay. That call went unacknowledged because at the identical time, the TCAS is going off. In the DC-10. In the DC-10. The DC so the TCAS okay. is talking over top of the controller. So just the timing is just just right. And, right? and, and in, the, in the flight deck, I mean, you, the TCAS would completely overwhelm anything else? No, being... not necessarily. It, it's going to be a voice that comes from a speaker. Okay. And not not through your headphones. Okay. So you have like basically you're going to have the controller talking in one ear. Yeah. And the speaker talking in the other ear. And I'm guessing the controller at this point is really animated about what he wants this DC-10 to do. And at the same time, the TCAS is shouting at him. Correct. Okay. So they're a little overwhelmed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now the closure rate of the two aircraft is, 800, is over 800 miles an hour. <laughs> they're getting really close to each other. In fact, just a few miles. They're closing on each other at around 12 miles a minute. Wow. Okay. Wow. The TCAS system on JL958, the DC-10, and JL907, they do exactly what they're supposed to do. 907, the 747, was told to climb by its TCAS. Okay. Because it's already above. It's above and climbing. It's above and climbing. Yeah. So the TCAS, which is interrogating directly to the DC-10, right? So these two systems are talking to each other. Yep. One system looks at the other one and says, oh, you're climbing? That looks good to me. Yep. Okay. Yep. Those two systems talk to each other. At the same time, the JAL 958, the controller's telling 958 to turn. The TCAS is telling 958 to descend. Descend. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Seems like it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This conflict would have been easily resolved by the computers on the aircraft, but humans got in the way. Hideki doesn't see the radar ping fast enough. The controller, again, mm. tells 907 to descend, mm. and the TCAS is telling the pilot to climb. climb. Yep. Okay. Uh, it's funny because our first conversation had to do with uh, perhaps the role of automation. Uh, Definitely. And, uh, uh, okay. <laughs> so before we go any farther, let's talk about training. Okay? okay. At this time in aviation history, 2001, there was not clear guidance on what the captain should do. So Captain Watanabe... So they're expected to take all the inputs that are happening, kind of synthesize based on everything they're hearing, seeing, looking at, seeing the instruments and make a decision? Yeah, basically that's what he was supposed... That's He's supposed to kind of like evaluate, right? Right. He's the captain, he's going to evaluate. Different companies had different training procedures, but there wasn't a standardized training procedure at the Mm. time. And no clear direction that says... And if all else fails, listen to the TCAS. Right. Yeah. Not at the time. Okay. So Captain so Captain Watanabe, he follows the orders from the controller, mm. Hideki, who's got old data. Yeah. The first officer on the JAL 958, the DC-10, the TCAS is talking over the controller. He doesn't hear the controller. He follows the TCAS. TCAS. And so okay. he starts to descend. So now he's starting to descend. descend. Or, um, I'm sorry, Hideki thinks that, he, that that airplane, the DC-10, may be turning. Turning, yeah. All right. A few seconds later, the air traffic controller supervisor, Yusuko, she steps in and tries to issue what we think are climb instructions to 907. Okay. The 747. Yep. Okay, so she tries to say, this is not right, climb. Climb, yeah. <laughs> She's going to agree with the TCAS. Yep. Okay. But in a panic, she tries to issue the clearance to, to 907, the 747, to climb oh. immediately, but she calls them the wrong flight number 957 oh there is no 957 in the sector no. nobody responds nobody responds of course not yeah all right oh, oh. you got any questions on where we are no <laughs> <laughs> all right so I'll, I'll give it a quick wrap up oh I'm, I'm thinking like four or five different scenarios from this point so let's get going <laughs> the two <laughs> the two aircraft are on a collision course and closing at enormously fast rates yeah. captain watanabe can now see the traffic oh. 
and he can be heard on What's the cockpit. What's shit in Japanese? Yes, he can be heard on the cockpit voice recorder saying that he sees it and and cursing. Okay. While the TCAS tells 907 to climb and 958 to descend, mm-hmm. you can hear it on the cockpit voice recorder. Three seconds go by while the airplanes close on each other. Then Captain Watanabe. I can't. I cannot imagine the view at this point. Just uh, yeah. I mean yeah. Yeah, so cap- life flashing before your eyes. <laughs> so Captain Watanabe shoves the nose of the 747 forward and down. The flight recorder shows that it registered almost negative 4 Gs. Holy crap. Which is well beyond the certified limit of the aircraft, which is only minus 1 G. Okay, so let me decode that for a so second. So I'm, I'm thinking about everything hitting the ceiling. So we live at 1, 1 G. G. Right. At 0 Gs... You would, uh, perfectly 0.0 Gs, you would stay in your seat, but you would be weightless. Right. right. At minus 1 G, you would accelerate the toward the yeah. ceiling at the same rate that you would have fallen from the ceiling, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. So we're talking whatever it is. 9.8 meters per second Thank squared. Thank you. Physics to the rescue. Exactly. But now <laughs> these, now the passengers are actually being accelerated toward the ceiling at four times that rate. I have bounced off the ceiling of a 757 once in extreme turbulence. Wow. It was not pleasant. I'm sure I, it, it wasn't and, pleasant. And it only lasted a second, thankfully. I cannot imagine minus 4 Gs because you were hauling ass to the ceiling. Yes, and both of these airplanes are also in cruise speed. <sighs> so it's very, it's very dramatic and a lot of stress on the airframes. Wow. wow. So at 35,600 feet, the two aircraft with a total of 664 people on board miss each other. Uh, there's that. There's that sigh. <laughs> yeah. By how much? And <laughs> ten meters. <gasps> Holy crap! Wow. However, the hard forward push sent the human occupants of the 747 into the ceiling with such force that 99 passengers were injured. Nine of them were injured severely. Wow. Wow. Yet more proof that you should keep your seatbelt fastened. Well, that's even why they the, even when the light is off, right? That's when they. <laughs> that's what they say when you return to if you're sitting yeah. in your seat. And you're sitting there comfortably, leave your seatbelt fastened. Wow. Wow. Seven passengers and two crew members of the 747 sustained serious injuries. Yeah. 81 passengers and 10 other crew members reported minor injuries. Some unbelted passengers, flight attendants, and drink carts yeah, hit I was the ceiling. Say, yeah. They say this This is silly. They, what's a loaded drink some. cart weigh? <laughs> you know, several hundred pounds. Right. It says some. And I think everything that wasn't yeah. bolted down hit the ceiling. Okay. Yep. They hit the ceiling with such force they dislodge a lot of the ceiling panels. So now the ceiling panels are falling. Yep. One young boy was thrown across four rows of seats. The maneuver broke the leg of a 54-year-old woman. Wow. In addition, wow. a drink cart spilled and scalded a number of passengers with hot tea and coffee. I believe it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. A flight attendant who sustained serious injuries was a 36-year-old female. She was thrown into and through the ceiling. <gasps> through? She was suspended there after the maneuvers with only her legs hanging out. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and this was before the days where everyone's got, like, a, a camera phone, right? Yeah, exactly. You know? No camera phones on board. I'm sure that would have been, like, you know, all over social media within, like, minutes, right? She was okay, and there were no fatalities. But <sighs> she literally, That's... they literally helped her out of the ceiling. <laughs> only her... <laughs> <laughs> so good. I'm just trying to imagine. No, no, it's so good. Oh, it's so good. The DC-10 took no um, evasive action. The, it, no one sustained any injuries. Okay. Did, did that, the passengers know what happened? Do you think? So the passengers on the DC-10 did see the 747. <laughs> Holy crap. Okay. And one of the passengers is quoted as saying. <laughs> One of the passengers is quoted as saying, I didn't think we were supposed to fly that close to other airplanes. <laughs> no I shit. thought he was going to clip us with his tail. <gasps> That's the quote. Wow. Yeah. 10 so, meters, 30 feet. Oh, wow. Man, I'm telling you. Uh-huh. Right? So uh, flight 907, the 747 uh, cabin was damaged. Yeah. yeah well, be- besides the cabin damage, I mean, was there like airframe damage? Because Pulling minus four Gs, I'm sure. So they did an inspection, and actually the 747-400 uh-huh. was completely undamaged. Wow. Other than the interior uh, wow. pieces and the passengers. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really surprised at that, too. I, I, I kind of went there, and I was like, how hurt was this airplane? Right. But it wasn't. Wow. Um, it returned to Haneda, where it had taken off. It landed at 4.45 p.m. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. It says it returned to Haneda and landed at 4.45 
and then 958 landed safely in Haneda, but they didn't both land in Haneda. No, because one was headed to Narita. Oh, yeah, that's right. So nine, I, I just mistyped it. Yeah, so 958 landed okay. in Narita. Gotcha. Okay, good. Okay, so let's talk Although about... Although I could, I could see diverting the flights to the same airport. For sure. Know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about the what could have happened, okay? Had the two loaded aircraft impacted in midair over Japan that day, it would have resulted, it would have resulted in the most deadly incident in aviation history even to date. Wow. Even deadlier than that horrible tragedy in Tenerife and the Canary Islands? Even deadlier than that. So wow. this airplane, these two airplanes had 664 people on board. Wow. I think the two 747s in Tenerife had around 500. Wow. So Still. this would have been really, really awful. Oh. And, and there were some survivors in that accident as well in wow. the Tenerife. Oh, wow. Because um, they were able to get away. And this, had this happened, every, it's oh, yeah, 100% no. fatal. Because they were at 37,000 feet. Right, and, exactly. Yeah. And had the tail even struck the other airplane, it would have been, yeah, yeah. I mean, just destroyed. <clears throat> Both the airplanes would have well, been Well, and destroyed. tail on a DC-10 at that point in time, I mean, you can imagine all the other failures that would go along with that. Oh, <clears> yeah. <throat> I mean, if the 747, so the 747 passes underneath the DC-10 oh, in okay. this case. And and the, it had the tail hit the DC-10. I mean, it would have just sheared. Yeah. And the 747 would have been destroyed as well. Seconds later, after they passed each other, the TCAS issued a clear of conflict advisory. <laughs> so that's kind of... <laughs> yeah. And here's where I go clean out my pants. Exactly. I would have been like, I'll be back in a little while. Yeah. Pee running down my yeah, legs. Exactly. Okay. So the aftermath. Wow. In its report on the accident published in July 2002, the Aircraft and Railway Accident Investigation Commission, Commission which is the Japanese NTSB, mm. called on the International Civil, Avi Civil Aviation Authority, which is basically the sort of like conglomerate governing body of the world. They write essentially rules that they suggest that every country should follow. Now, do they adjudicate conflicts between they, the they don't. Oh, just They just write rules. They write rules. Okay. So basically, the Japanese NTSB, they wrote to IKO, and they made it clear that TCAS advisories should always take precedence over, AT mm. over ATC instructions. You think? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, here's what's bad. A similar recommendation was made three months later by the German um, accident investigation body due to an accident that occurred under similar circumstances. I'm going to cover that in a later podcast. In total, there were four governments who wrote to IKO asking them for this guidance. Mm -hmm. IKO did issue the guidance in November of 2003, but it took an additional two years for airlines around the world to begin adopting the recommendation. What? Four years later. What took so long? I mean, it, I, I mean, just listen to the TCAS. It's a bureaucratic machine. I don't wow. really know. I'm not sure. Were there any other incidents that happened that this would have... A rule change would have impacted yes. or made a big difference. Yes, oh, especially awesome. had they done had they done it quickly. Yeah, it would have made a difference. Wow, wow. So in May 2003, the Tokyo police filed an investigative report against Hideki, the ATC trainee, Yasuko, the ATC supervisor, and Captain Watanabe. It charged them with professional negligence. But you know, in listening to the account, I'm trying to figure out where he was negligent. Right, and actually, that gets recognized in March 2004. Pro prosecutors indicted Hideki and Yasuko, uh -huh. and they dropped all charges against Captain Watanabe. Uh, okay, that makes sense. The controller, Hideki, is 30 years old, and Yasuko uh, was then 35 years old. They pled not guilty to the charges, and during the same year, their lawyers said that the pilots of the aircraft wore the responsibility for the near miss. But like I said, no pilots were indicted. Right. Okay. Well, it makes me wonder what Hideki is doing these days. So in 2005, yeah, I mean, he's still, he would still be a young guy. Wow. Yeah. I think I was about yeah. that age. I think he's about my age, honestly. Wow. Yeah. So by 2005, there were 12 trials. The prosecution argued that the two defendants, the two controllers, neglected to provide proper separation for the two aircraft, that the instructions issued were inappropriate, and that the supervisor failed to correct the trainee. And then the defense argued that the lack of separation would not immediately have led to a near miss. Um, and the instructions issued were appropriate, but that the TCAS procedures were not properly executed. Hmm. Even though the TCAS procedures weren't all that well-defined or not nearly as well-defined as they should be. Right, and that's kind of the point, right? And so the TCAS, we, Japan Airlines wasn't specifically teaching follow the TCAS, follow the TCAS, mm -hmm. okay? 
and they're trying that's their that's that's their defense mm. the defense lawyers are saying yeah. they the pilots are to blame and they're not even trying to indict the pilots they're just trying to deflect yeah but you know earlier you were talking about how you've got spatial awareness of what's happening in front of you even in a foreign country just by listening to the traffic yeah at the same point i would expect hideki to have really good spatial awareness on what the 747 was doing and have given them better instructions other than just freaking out that- I, I completely agree with you hideki saw the climb yeah. so like oh it's climbing faster than usual he saw this climb throughout right. his entire sector. It wasn't like a new... It's not a surprise. Right, it wasn't an <laughs> instant thing. So in 2006, prosecutors asked for Hideki and Yasuko to be sentenced to 18 months in prison. That was in February. But in March 2006, uh, a lower cor- court ruled that they were not guilty of the charge, hmm. which is professional negligence. Hmm. However, on April 11th, 2008, a higher court overturned that decision found both controllers guilty, and the presiding judge sentenced Sadeki to prison for one year mm-hmm. and Yusuko to prison for 18 months. Both, however, were placed on probation, had their sentences suspended. In 2010, another judge upheld the sentences on appeal. Neither controller ever served time. Mm. Well, and you could argue that just the, um, I don't know, the, the traumatic mistake was an amazing learning. And of course, they wouldn't do anything like that ever again. So you, do, you, do you throw them in jail for that? Especially... Yeah. With the fact that nobody was killed in this case, even though there were some serious injuries. So I think that, that you make a good point, and it's probably what the judge was thinking. Mm. He was probably saying, this guy was a trainee, yep. this, guy was a, or this, this, this woman was a supervisor, this guy's a trainee. They did the best they could. They issued the wrong instruction, but nobody got killed. So we're going to put a light sentence on them. Yeah. But then never sent them to jail. It was a suspended sentence, so well, then and, went on probation. And the suspended sentence was longer for the supervisor, which definitely makes sense. I think also this speaks to legal systems generally. What they're trying to do is not necessarily punish two people, but set a precedent. Yeah. Right. Well, and and if you can make change as a result of that so that something like that wouldn't happen again, technical, procedural, otherwise, right? Right. And by the time they were sentenced in in 2010, not only was the procedure an IKO procedure, but airlines had been training it now for five Mm -hmm. years. Okay. So why did the pilot follow the controller instructions instead of the TCAS? So we touched on this a little bit, right? He wasn't ever taught that there was a priority. Mm-hmm. It was left up to his judgment. Mm. And that's why the charges were dropped against right. Cap- Captain right. Watanabe right away. He was just making a judgment call. I mean, the only way to really judge that that response in that situation is to have sat there with him, right? Right. <laughs> uh, oh, yes, yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So the other thing I want to talk about, and you've traveled to Japan, mm-hmm. I want to talk about cultural differences in Japan, mm. especially when we're talking about authority figures. Mm-hmm. Okay. High-level authority figures. You're just, you have someone who is literally labeled the controller, mm-hmm. and you have the pilot. Well, okay. and in that society, hierarchy is extraordinarily important. Right, it's very right? important, and it and, it, and it, it it begins when you're a child, right? It, it's just the the culture. It's the way you learn how to be. The controller essentially is has the power yep. in that situation because Captain Watanabe is thinking he sees all of this stuff. He's got the big picture. Mm-hmm. Also, he's an authority figure, and I follow what controllers tell me to do. Yep. I'm yep. a rule follower. Yep. And that's a very cultural thing mm-hmm. in Japan. We may not be like that in the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. in the United States, you get pulled over for a speeding ticket, and you do what the cop says. And then you try to get out of it. Right, but also <laughs> you say, well, what did I do? Right. Well, what am I being pulled over for? So you get a smart-ass <laughs> attitude with them. That's not really the culture in Japan. Mm, not at all. Right. So I just want the listeners to recognize that it's culturally different. There's a cultural difference. Let's talk about what's changed since and how things are today. Okay. Because I think this is important. Yep. Yep. So this incident in particular, I brought this incident up because this incident had such long-lasting effect. Still today, we talk about it and we do the lessons we learned from this incident. So do you have like case studies as part of your training? We you do case through? studies, yes. We do oh. short case studies as part of training. Oh, cool. Okay. Um, today, pilots are trained to listen to the TCAS and disregard, disregard all other instructions. All conflicting instructions or not conflicting instructions follow the TCAS. That is like the, the cardinal rule. Because yeah, can, the T stands for terminal, right? <laughs> traffic. <laughs> or traffic. Oh, okay. Yeah. Traffic <laughs> collision avoidance system. Gotcha. So let me, I'll talk a, a, a bit more about how it works. So we talked about um, TCAS systems and how uh, TCAS systems talk to each other, mm-hmm. which is really, really important. And they're doing, they're doing it, at that time they were doing it 10 times a second. 
Now the refresh rates are probably much higher than that. Wow. Wow. So I'm relieved to hear that. <laughs> yes. Because uh, there's a lot, it seems like there's a lot more traffic in the air these days, even than, than that point in time. There definitely is. Yeah. Now the TCAS also gives visual indications and you essentially like point the nose into a little box that it displays for you. Oh, oh, that's cool. You don't point it below the box if it tells you to go down uh -huh. because what it's actually doing now is it's not only oh. looking at the target that it sees the conflict with. Yeah. It's looking at all Everything the targets else. around. Oh, so it's kind of giving you a safe visual path through it's the giving airspace it, ahead. Correct. Oh, that's not cool. only not only against the traffic that that is causing the problem, yep. but it provides separation from all the traffic in the area. Mm. So it works vertically, does not work laterally at all. It will never tell you to turn. Really? No. It will only tell you to climb or descend. Okay, but if there's multiple targets in the area, let's say you have an airplane crossing at 800 feet above you, mm -hmm. and you have an airplane crossing at 300 feet below you, okay. it will climb you a tiny bit, and it will say level off, and it will thread that needle. Wow. So wow. it's really That's smart. Cool. Yeah. So it takes all these inputs and it puts it, you know, it puts it together. Well, I suppose the the lateral versus vertical makes sense because it's it takes longer to really execute a turn anyway. Absolutely. And in, in, in a in a, a high pressure situation where you've got to make a an instant maneuver, a climb or a descend makes uh, can go a lot faster, right? Right. Absolutely. Because yep. you're pulling or pushing. Yep. And we saw how fast Captain Watanabe made that change yeah you're pulling or pushing instead of slowly banking which a banked turn in an airplane going 600 miles an hour to to get turned around going the other way you can take up to 30 miles yeah, yeah exactly. so it, it doesn't so it doesn't have that much effect yep. it's just like you like just like you said turning doesn't have that much effect yeah. um, on immediate path but up and down very much does okay so could this happen today what do you think it could because the airplane will not fly itself Mm. You still have to respond. Correct. We still have to respond. Okay. But because of all the training we talked about, the likelihood of this cap of this happening is incredibly low. I'm relieved. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> and glad I didn't spend a couple seconds on a ceiling on that flight. Oh, <laughs> Holy crap. Oh, all right. Mm. So, so that's the incident. But I want to talk to you about philosophically, because I think that there's a larger message here. Or in your opinion, is there a larger message? So... If we looked back in the 90s, that's kind of before these kind of instructions, right? Right. The 80s and 90s. And then around this time, we kind of see the introduction of this. And now we're kind of, we're putting in place laws that say to, that say to us, you now have to follow the robot right. more than you have to follow the human. So, so how does this look to you as a person and as an expert going yeah, forward? To me, it, it, it speeds up situational awareness and it is better at identifying a path out of danger than and, and properly operate, operating again with that sole focus so it doesn't sure. have to have that that broad perspective so i think it speeds up good decision making okay but it's not making the decision for you but what about now, um let's talk about like uh autopilots in self-driving cars yeah it's kind of similar right <clears throat> I it mean, is. It, it it is. So, but the question is: Is it making a path? To, is it making a path determination for you and actually executing it? In this case, no. TCAS doesn't because the pilot's still in the loop. Right. 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 Um, but just like we're finding that cars with self-driving features, if they operate together with other cars driving self with self-driving features, they can actually be much more safer on a road. And it's sure. the non-self-driving car that becomes the dangerous one because it's relatively unpredictable. Right. So let me talk to you about what happened before TCAS. So before TCAS, there was interrogation, uh -huh. but the airplanes didn't interrogate each other. Right. So essentially you have all these yep. uninformed uh, aluminum tubes up there flying around. Right, 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 right. And so, and trusting on information from the ground about, from the ground about situational awareness. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, but once they could talk to each other, yeah, it's almost like hive mentality, right? And exactly looking out and going, "Oh, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing?" And so, just going forward in the future, I'm predicting, and I think that we're as we as pilots are not going to have to respond anymore. That the aircraft is going to manage that separation with communications with other folks. Yes. Yeah, that's that's. I believe that's the next step in our yeah. evolution. Is that well? And if you take a look at AI models about driverless cars, they're coming to the same conclusion as well. Um, that cars that communicate and use using smart roads, or in this case, right. smart airways, yeah. right? 
Um, yeah, absolutely. The same kind of safety improvements, are, you know, I, I would say expect. I would say expect them, right? Mm -hmm. But then that puts the onus on equipment manufacturers as well as, you know, the other technology manufacturers to, you know, amazing test and verification procedures because you've got to not only not only have good evidence that your system operates safely, but <clears throat> at, at the core is designed so that it can't operate unsafely. And that's the biggest challenge. Gotcha. Right? And so it requires a mix of, think of a mix of reactive behaviors uh -huh. and proactive behaviors. So proactive uh, behaviors would be, I plan, I go, I execute step right. A, B, and C. And right. I'm somewhere. looking ahead. Right. But the reactive behavior says, wow, it's like TCAS is today. Something where, went wrong, now do this. Or something outside my sphere of control oh. is going to create a situation that I need to respond to. Gotcha. Right. So it requires a mix of proactive behaviors and reactive behaviors. It can't just be one system. It's, and, it's a collection of things. And we're not there yet. Not yet. We're getting there. Yep. We will. I, probably within the next 20 to 30 years, I think. I think so, too. I'm not advocating for getting rid of pilots, even in that case. Um, and no. not because I'm a pilot, but also because I don't want to be in that airplane with nobody up front. Exactly. And so people have said... Well, what so technology fails, right? Right. Absolutely, it uh, does. And, and I want to have somebody smart and trained and experienced sure. when technology fails. And so, yeah, that's... And that was... I just kind of wanted to get your philosophical sort of... And, and, and also, like, your expert opinion you know, on, on where that is. But I can see how that's not, that's not really AI, right? But it's, no. but it is sort of like a technological hive mentality that becomes, um, that becomes predictive. The Predi more you add, right. the and more predictive it gets. It's a network effect. So to the extent that everything in that airspace has that kind of capability, it's dramatically safer. It's crowdsourcing. Right. But it's the, it's the one that doesn't, that's going to create chaos in it. Oh, you're so right. Yep. All right. So, <laughs> so that's our podcast. Let me read my let me read my sources. Um, my main source is uh, from the Japan Times. Ten meters from disaster. That's from uh, wow. February two February second of two thousand one. It only took them a couple days to get get that one out. Wikipedia, as always, the Japan Airlines official press release from February first two thousand one. The official aircraft. Let me see if I'll say this right. Aircraft and Railway Accidents Investigation Committee report. That's the Japanese NTSB. Say that 10 times fast. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, FlightSafetyAustralia.com. That article is called Meters in Milliseconds. It was published in 2015. Wow. <laughs> and an ABC News article from 2006 called Japan Jet in Midair Near Miss, which seems like a random, uh, yeah, exactly. uh, whatever. It was ABC. What Sounds like word, word salad to me. <laughs> <laughs> they ran out of good titles, exactly. And uh, AirLive.net, a section called On This Day, which I really enjoy. And on this day. Exactly, on this day. <laughs> so I'd like to thank you for being here, Kent. Uh, glad to do it. And uh, and th that this was very enjoyable. Thank you. And yeah, we'll do it again. Sounds great. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Take care.